0: I'm sure that you're aware that this is Reformation Sunday. Churches all around the world are celebrating what God did through the Reformation and the Reformers. Uh, Of course, we owe much praise and thanksgiving to God for uh, what He did uh, for us through them. Uh, Many of those, of course, gave their lives for what we now enjoy. We're sitting here this morning because of much of the work of the Reformers. In case you don't know about the Reformation, it is sometimes called the Protestant Reformation because it began with a protest against the Roman Catholic doctrine and practice. So we're Protestants here is what we would be. And of course this month, October marks the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's nailing of the 95 Theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And in case you wonder uh, how he could do such an uh, amazing thing, a bold thing, uh, in Luther's day, that's how you made a public announcement. You nailed it to the church door. And so it wasn't uncommon, per se, to be nailing stuff to the church door. It's just what he nailed to the church door that was so transforming. Uh, and it still is today. So this month marks that 500th anniversary of when Luther went and took his 95 thesis and nailed it to the door and began a debate about the use of indulgences in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, The Catholic Church taught that by way of financial payment or other prescribed means like specific prayers or performing good works or visiting certain sacred places, uh, a person could actually reduce the amount of punishment that they would receive after death. It's called an indulgence. You could buy your way out of purgatory or you know, act good your way out of purgatory. The church also began to teach that indulgences could be purchased for family members who had already died and thereby decreasing and reducing their amount of punishment that they would be facing in the next life. Now, I'm not sure how you would transfer those credits to those folks. But that was the teaching of the church, and so we're thinking of reviving this teaching in our church because we have a building to pay off, <laughs> and we would like to reintroduce the idea of indulgences here. Um, there will be a box at the back. Uh, no, you, We laugh about that, right? But what if I were serious? How would you respond? How should you respond? Screaming, running from the room is how you should respond which is the very thing that motivated Luther to take the nail and the paper to the door of the Wittenberg Church. You know, it was more than just the indulgences that concerned Luther. He had many pastoral concerns that were wrapped up in the teaching of the church of his day, and his concerns, his pastoral concerns, really, is what lit the fire of the Reformation in Europe in his day. In the years immediately following the famous 95 thesis, Luther engaged in other highly significant debates on some very critical issues to the church and church life. In Heidelberg, for example, in 1518, he argued that humility was the key to salvation. In Leipzig, about a year later, Luther declared that the decrees of the pope and the church deserve the closest scrutiny because many of them were indefensible by scripture. In 1520, Luther wrote treatises challenging the church's view on the sacraments, on justification, and good works. And he debated the authorities on every one of them. During the next year, Luther was summoned to appear um, before the famous imperial Diet of Worms in a last-ditch effort to get him to recant, to say, okay, I'm not going to teach this anymore. Of course, that failed, and we know the famous words of Luther at that place where he said, I, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. In later years, Luther would turn his attention to something illegal, which was translating the Bible into German. See, Luther was a pastor. He had to to teach his church, who had withdrawn from the Roman Catholic Church, what it meant to worship, what it meant to have the Word of God read to you in a language you understood, and how to respond to one another in love based on Scripture. These kinds of issues and many more had to be addressed by Luther and all the Reformers and should be a a great reminder of the Reform that was set in place 500 years ago this October. It reminds us of the implications uh, that the Reformation brought to our attention and the benefits. So the heart of the Reformers uh, was laid out really with, with five Great foundational rallying cries, and most of you are familiar with these. If you're not, I have them for you on the overhead, and, and uh, I'll, I'm going to go through them one at a time. But here are the five, uh, just to mention them. <clears throat> these are the, the terms used to designate the, that the, the, the central heart for these men that were protesting against the abuses of the Catholic Church at that time. The first was this, sola scriptura or scripture alone. The second was sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola Christus, solus Christus, Christ alone. And soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. These five solas were developed in response to specific perversions of truth that were taught by the the corrupt Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Church taught, for example, that the foundation for faith and practice was a combination of scriptures, tradition, the teachings of the Pope. But the reformer said no, (laughs) scripture alone is the foundation for what we believe and practice. The Catholic Church taught that we are saved through a combination of God's grace and the merits that we accumulate through penance and good works, and the extra merits that those who've gone before us had saved up. And of course the reformer said no, it's, it's sola gracia, grace alone that we are saved by. The Catholic Church taught that we are justified by faith and by works that we produce, which the righteousness of God that was infused into us at the moment of regeneration allows. And so the the, the teaching was, when you come to Christ, God infuses you, kind of like an injection, a spiritual injection of righteousness. This injection allows you to act rightly, and those righteous acts, those things themselves, are what God took as your justification. That is a problem <laughs> because, the, because of what we believe about whose righteousness we have. It's not our own, is it? It's the righteousness of Christ. And so they would say, no, it was, it was faith alone that justifies, faith in what Christ has done and his righteousness, sola fide. The Catholic Church also taught that, that we are saved by the merits of Christ and the merits of the saints and that we approach God through Christ and the saints and particularly Mary who prayed for us and interceded for us. And again, the reformers responded by saying, no, we are saved by the merits of Christ alone, solus Christus. The Catholic Church believed that what Martin Luther called to be a, they believed in a theology of glory. Um, By the way, you you know that the song we sang this morning um, was penned by Luther, right? You're familiar with that. I hope you noticed that in uh, your liturgy this morning. But the Catholic Church believed um, that in the theology of, of glory, Luther called it, in which the glory for a sinner's salvation was shared, not just with God, but with Mary and the saints that had gone before us and the sinner themselves. And so, the reformers responded by saying, no, no, not at all. The only true gospel is that which gives all the glory to God alone as is taught in the scriptures, sola deo gloria. A month ago, we received a, in case, you, in case you think this is just a lesson in history, a month ago, we received an invitation from two local churches in this town. And the opening line of this invitation says this, as you are well aware this year marks the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's posting of his 95 Thesis, which initiated the Reformation. We are more aware, that, more aware than ever that the struggle of the 16th century is over. This is sent to us by a local Catholic church and a local Lutheran church. Friends, the struggle is not over, obviously. Today, the Catholic Church teaches these same essential doctrines, even though Catholics and Lutherans have tried to call a truce and are saying that they would like to let bygones be bygones. Why don't we just forget the Reformation, in essence, is what's being said? Unfortunately, many Protestant churches, including the Lutherans, have retreated to many of the same corruptions that existed in the medieval church. I think it's important for all Christians everywhere to reaffirm the five solas that I've just reviewed for you, uh, which inspired and actually gave energy to the Protestant Reformation. Each of these five solas are vital, but I believe that there is one of these solas that is more vital and stands above the rest, and it is this, sola scriptura. I believe all the other solas roll out of and come under sola scriptura. And since we are studying Psalm 119, I think this fits very well into the claims of this unique chapter in Psalm 119. So if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Psalm 119 as we look into primarily the fourth verse. One thing that that a commitment to the uniqueness of Scripture brings us is a realization that unless God initiates and reveals himself to us, we cannot know him. We can know nothing of faith, nothing of grace, nothing of Christ, unless God reveals it to us in His Word. Thankfully, God has done just that. Not only has revealed, to, revealed Himself to us in creation, like we heard read this morning, but more specifically, He has revealed to Him, Himself to us in the book. Now, the revelation that we see around us, the, the, the sky above and the earth beneath, is sufficient to communicate the existence of God, but not sufficient enough to save us. So it is actually the, the, the creation that we all experience actually is a condemning force over us spiritually. From time to time, I have a hard time sleeping, and so I wake up in the middle of the night for no known reason, and I grab my Kindle, and I go out on our back porch And wrap up in a blanket and read a little bit and pray a little bit. And I'm regularly struck with the majesty of God as I look out into the night sky. I see beautiful stars and an occasional meteor and the moon and so forth. And I'm struck with the awesome God that we have. Without God's word, I would still be able to determine that there was a being greater than myself that had something to do with what I was looking at but I would not know how to commune with him. You know, I might try all sorts of things that have been tried throughout human history, but until there is a special revelation from God in his word, in a language I can understand, I will have no means by which to commune with this God who I know is out there. Our only hope for understanding who he is and his benevolent nature is a more special revelation Uh, a a more specific revelation than the stars and the moon. We, We must have this special revelation or we cannot know Jesus. We cannot know that God became man to live perfectly and die in our place, aside from this special revelation. Unless we were told these things, we wouldn't know them. For example, in Luke 2. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. We would not know that otherwise. In Matthew chapter 1, she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. How would you know that otherwise? And I'm hoping to to establish some sort of, of appreciation for the fact that you have a copy of this. How do we know that Jesus died for our sins other than what is revealed to us in scripture John 129 the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world this one Jesus he is the lamb of god he is the sacrifice he is the substitute for me and my sin i would not know that unless it was revealed Paul told this to Timothy, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. This is why Jesus came. This is why God came from his celestial home, to live with us, among us, to die, so that he could save me, a sinner. There's no way to know that unless we have a copy. And this is one of the things the Reformation was insistent upon. Sola Scriptura the importance of the foundation of our hope resting on the Word of God revealed. You see, there is no hope of knowing the way to heaven or how we can have our sins forgiven apart from this Word. This was the heart of the Reformers. It is our only hope. It is is our only hope also because of of man's sin. The, The reason the church became corrupt in the Middle Ages was because of man's sin. Anytime that traditions or man's wisdom or man's opinion has influence over us, invariably uh, a a corrupting force is at play. Many believe in the inherent goodness of man, and and we prove this regularly by saying things like, oh, they're really a good person, they're good people, she's really a good kid. Uh, Well, if we just let the goodness of our hearts come out, things will work out in this Situation, but the Bible indicates something completely different. God has revealed to us something that is actually different than how we would naturally think. The Bible tells us that, that no, we are not actually good in and of ourselves. We are actually bad in and of ourselves. Paul, for example, in Romans 3 said it like this, as it is written, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. That's not too encouraging, is it? And yet that's a description of the human race, all of us. And Paul even gets more specific in Ephesians chapter 4. They, referring to those who don't know Christ, referring to those of us in this room before we knew Christ, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. Friends, sin is a heinous thing. It it actually not only separates us from God at conception, it is an active agent that works to widen that separation every day of our lives. Have you noticed that? That it never gives you a break? You can never go on vacation from sin? This is how sin works. It it, it works to aggravate the soul against its creator. That's why there is no such thing as a plateau in the Christian life. Don't you wish there were? You know, you think you know some great Christian from a biography you've read, and you think, man, they were, they were on cruise control. Well, that plateau doesn't exist because of sin. Every one of us have, has been given a freedom from the power of sin because of what Christ did on Calvary and because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, but the reality of it is because we live in the body of flesh, because we have this sinful nature that we were born with, that we were conceived with, we actually... Have to struggle every single day with it. Either either you're progressing in your faith and love for Christ or you are digressing in your faith and love for Christ. There there is no neutral ground. You are either killing sin or it's killing you. There is no truce in our war against sin, It, it has to be waged daily. It's a battle that we can try to ignore, but when we do, it's always, it always results in spiritual drift or a cooling of our affections towards Christ, towards Christ's people, towards Christ's word. You ever notice that? Whenever you try to find that, that plateau or, or put your life on cruise control, try to ignore the battle with sin, you never drift closer to Christ. You ever notice that? It's because of your sin nature. It works as an agent of aggravation against its creator. You have a creator, sin gets involved and actively tries to separate you from your creator. It's at work when you're sleeping. That's how bad it is. This is why an intimate connection with other believers is so critical to your spiritual health and happiness. I can say that if you're not intimately connected to other believers with whom you regularly speak of Christ, you are spiritually vulnerable, and I would say your faith is tenuous at best. When we receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we acknowledge the fact that our sin and rebellion is against God. We admit an act of rejection of His rightful rule over us in exchange for Ruling ourselves, coming to Jesus really, is to cast yourself humbly on Christ, begging His mercy, pleading His grace, that He has actually promised to all who will come to Him by faith. This is what happens when we receive Christ. But the corruption of the human heart is the reason for every failure in your life. The sin within is the reason that churches fall apart, families disintegrate, governments fail. Anytime that there is a relationship difficulty in your family, it is because of the sin in your heart, without exception. Every time our government legislates in a way that harms its people is because of the sin in the hearts of our legislators. Friends, every time a church implodes, every time there is a split or a leadership crisis in a local church, it is a direct result of sin without exception. There has never been one sinless church split in the history of the church, ever. Um, You know, when we first planted Sun Valley Church, we were asked often why we split from Westside, our mother church, Westside Baptist. And we were constantly correcting language. And we had to remind people it wasn't a split. It wasn't a split. It was a strategic multiplication. And people laughed at that and said, oh, there, no, you were, you 75 people, what went wrong over there? Well, It wasn't a split, actually. The the leadership of Sun Valley Church believed that for the sake of the gospel, it would be strategic to take 75 of us and plant us in East Valley at the high school. Many of you were part of that. Many of you were not. But even in that church plant, I'm confident I have proof that it was not a sinless church plant. Because we were there. I was there. You see, the point of this is that if we as a human race would totally submit to God and His precepts, there would be no family struggle, there would be no crisis in our government, there would be no relational difficulties at your work, no church splits, no international wars if we would just submit to God, all of us at once. God's will for every institution, including the family, the church, the government, is plainly laid out in Scripture. And when we diverge from His standard, we suffer the consequences of going our own way. Which is why when we come to Psalm 119, it makes more sense. Look at the first four verses. It says that happiness is reserved for those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Happy are those who keep his testimonies and seek him with their whole heart and do no wrong but walk in his ways. He has commanded that his precepts be kept diligently, not because he can, but because he loves. You know, God, God has the authority, the right, the power to demand certain things of his creation. But he doesn't do it because he can. He commands these things because he loves and he wants you to experience the happiness described here. Finally, it's because of God's word. Now, we say that kind of, it just kind of rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Because it's God's word. But I want to emphasize it by making this point A the same as the third point. It's God's word. <laughs> it is not just God's word. It's, God's word. Look at verse 4. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. And what's the first word in that sentence? You. It is emphasized for a reason. It is his commandment, his precept, his word that we're discussing. It isn't some man-made idea that we're talking about. It isn't, Pastor John's idea or your small group leader's idea or any, some, any popular Christian speaker or author you choose. It's, it's not man's idea that's on the table. It's God's idea. This book is his word, not man's. You know, man-made ideas may be helpful. Many of them are. But God's ideas are necessary. They're necessary for our spiritual well-being and personal happiness. And this is why we strive week after week to open the book here at Sun Valley, explain and apply its meaning. We want you to encounter God here and his word, his ideas. Paul said this to Titus in his second chapter, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. What was Paul saying? Declare these things and exhort and rebuke with all authority? Was it Titus's authority? Was it Paul's authority? No, it's God's authority. Friends, because Titus had the Word of God, he could preach it without fear. We can speak the Word of God here with all authority. We don't have to cringe or feel embarrassed when we're speaking God's Word because it might offend our hearers. If we truly believe that that God is faithful, and that this is his word, we can teach it with all authority, believing that he is building his church, whether or not the people like what they're hearing. I mean, no one likes to hear that they're a loser, right? And yet, the Bible clearly communicates that we are. And how is it that we're losers? Well, it says that if you, if you don't know Christ, you are lost and on your way to hell. That makes you a loser. Being lost makes you a loser. And no one likes to hear that. No one likes to be corrected. No one likes to be told they're a sinner and having it pointed out to them. You know, my wife tries to point these things out to me from time to time. And, you know, my, my sinful... Response: The sin that's within me—it's not me; it's a sin that's within me. Responds and says, "Well, how's that, Miss Perfect?" And then we're off, and there we go. You see, the Word of God isn't like that. The Word of God does point out our sin, but but provides a solution. You see, one of the enemy's greatest tricks, as we think about what verse 4 means, one of the enemy's greatest tricks is to make us believe that the Word of God is just a suggestion for living instead of a rule for living. This is the trick Satan used on Eve with much success. You remember that story? They were having a conversation, that is, the serpent... And Eve in Genesis 3 and Eve told the serpent after the temptation and no, we're not supposed to eat of this fruit and what was Satan's question? Did God actually say, wasn't that just a suggestion Eve? Come on now, seriously. It's a good piece of fruit. It looks good, doesn't it? I think that was just a suggestion. And we have the same thing thrown at us every day, don't we? Well, don't your ideas about your own money make more sense than what you read in this dusty old book? I mean, come on, God gave you a brain. You can make your own decisions about how to spend your time, how to spend your money. I mean, you're a grown-up for Pete's sake. You know how to treat people. Well, what? wait a minute. Is this a, a book of suggestions, a collection of suggestions, or, or something more. Satan wants you to think it's a suggestion. We, we tend to believe that, if, that we can actually, without offending God, choose to do things our own way and just ignore the book of commands. I, I don't want to do it that way. Let me know, Pastor John, when you're going to preach a, a sermon series on giving and I'll Go on vacation. That way I don't have to hear it. Well, what does Psalm 119.4, what does it say is commanded? Look at the verse. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. What's a precept? Precepts are rules for life and faith. Rules. Not suggestions. You are commanded to keep God's rules. So, How are we gonna do this? Well, we must exercise care when we approach the word of God. We must work hard at being obedient. We will never obey God's commands diligently if we're not actually intently focused on what God has said. We don't diligently keep things by accident, any place in life. Diligently keeping God's precepts means that we will be zealous in our obedience. Many times this means that our obedience will cost us something. We won't be able to obey if our approach to God and His Word is apathetic. If it's a take it or leave it attitude, I don't like that suggestion. Diligence won't be a part of your vocabulary or experience. If you're a diligent athlete, you get up early, you work out, you follow a strict diet, you work at refining your skills, you're diligent. If you're a diligent businessman, you you work at ways at refining your business practice. You're careful to do research regarding your product or service to make sure that you're on the cutting edge. Why? Because you're a diligent businessman. And when you diligently obey God's word, you actually care about God's opinions about how we live. We actually know what the Bible says about how to raise our kids, about how to treat one another, about how to spend our time. God actually has input on these things. So, are you being diligent as a Christian or apathetic as a Christian towards the things that are in this book of commands? You know, when our kids were younger, we had chores, like I'm sure you guys give your children chores. And we just, and we, when we lived over on 52nd Avenue, we had a really long driveway that every year, a lot of weeds grew, and so we had our kids go out. Part of their chores was to pull the weeds. We also had them sweep cement over the top of the blacktop. To, we were told was going to give the blacktop longer life. We learned differently later, but nevertheless, our children were supposed to help us sweep cement over the top of the blacktop. And my son, Mark, who's... who's uh, uh, actually, well famous for his ability to do as little as possible, um, and still get away with it. He was trying. He's always figuring out how to do this better, how to do it easier. So we had these big push brooms, and each of the kids had them, and I'd be pouring the cement over the, and they would be pushing it. And Mark took off his shirt one day, and he wrapped it around the end of the, the broomstick. Stuck it in his belly button and just walked <laughs> down the driveway. And I said, Mark, thank you for your zeal <laughs> and your diligence. What an example you are to your siblings. What, a, what an example. <laughs> Is this how we are with God's commands? Figuring out a way to do it, but don't get too excited about it. Don't be so fanatical. Well, friends, the manner of our obedience is just as important as the matter of our obedience. This is what this verse means. You will diligently obey. Paul said in 1 Corinthians the same thing. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run? Everybody's in the race, friends. But guess what? Only one person wins. And Paul said... Run the race to win it. Be diligent. Be zealous. Prepare. We are to run diligently. He then told the Roman church in chapter 12 do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in the Spirit. Serve the Lord. How is it that you can be slothful in zeal? Evidently, you can, because Paul said, don't do that. Let me tell you how. You can be here every week serving in the nursery and everybody thinks you're just really on it. And you're not. You're slothful. Your attitude stinks. You're upset because no one's taken your spot or because this or because that. Or make up your own scenario. You can be slothful in zeal. You can be here until you're blue in the face. It's not the point. God says be diligent. Paul says don't be slothful. What does it say about our understanding of who God is if our service to Him is slight or shoddy? What does it say about your understanding of who God is? By obeying Him diligently, it brings great assurance of faith to our souls and gives evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit. The word of God also reveals the gospel. It's in this word where we find the words of life. You remember the story in John 6 where Jesus preached away all of his followers except for 12, thousands left, and these 12 guys are sitting around here going, on oh, now, now what? And Jesus said, You want to go too? And they said, No, we, we have no place to go, only you have the words of eternal life. And you know what, friends? That is still true. And this is the copy of those words. This is is the copy of the words of life. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, From childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the scriptures, these things, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, we have here a copy of the gospel. That which saves us that which makes us right with God, that which deals with our sin and rebellion, we have a copy of it right here. We know exactly what it is. But I want to help you connect the idea between God's commands or laws and the gospel. And to do that, I want you to think with me just for a second. You know, in in evangelical uh, Protestantism, we really want to make a separation between law and gospel. Talk about it all the time. Don't don't talk about that's law. That's law. You know. What's the Bible say here? Let me ask you a question and see if this might help you clarify things. Are we required to keep any of God's laws to be saved? Careful how you answer it. Are you required to obey any of God's laws to be saved? Well, let me read... A Bible verse for you. 1 John, written by a guy who knew Jesus pretty well, said this, and this is his commandment, law, that we believe in the name of Jesus, his son, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Friends, you cannot be saved unless you obey the command to believe. It's not just me and Jesus on the mountainside. There is actually a requirement. (laughs) You must believe in Jesus Christ. That is a command. The gospel is a command, which is why those who reject it and and refuse to obey the gospel are rejecting God personally. I believe in God, but I just don't believe this Gospel stuff. No, you don't. So what does belief in Jesus look like? And this is where Scripture comes in so handy. Uh, This is why sola scriptura is so important, not only to the Reformers, but to us. What does belief in Jesus look like? What is the foundation of our belief system revealed in Scripture? Jesus said it himself. He tells us in Scripture what it means to believe in him. And so we ought to know that. Does believing in Jesus mean more than believing that Jesus existed? We'd all say, sure, of course. It means more than that. Well, let me continue. Does it mean more than believing that Jesus died for your sins? Now there's some fog entering. Is it more than a one-time decision that you made to follow Christ and confess your sins? More fogs rolling in. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Well, let me tell you what that means from the words of Jesus. What did he say? You must deny yourself and take up your cross once in your life. Is that what he said? What did he say? Daily. Daily. It is a daily event to believe in Jesus. He said in Luke 15, if you're going to follow me, you must prioritize me above everything in your life. Above father, mother, brother, sister, houses, lands. I must be above them all or you're not believing in me. You're not following me. You remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus in Matthew 19. He said, Lord, I've done all these things. I obey the law. I'm, I'm, just a, I'm really a good guy. What else do I lack? What, what, what's, what's, I'm missing something. And Jesus said, take everything you own, and it was a lot. Sell it and give it to the poor. You see, Jesus could care less if this guy was a strict legalist. And on top of that, he could care less about the man's money. Because he didn't say, like so many uh, televangelists say today, sell your stuff and give me the money. He says, sell your stuff and give your money to the poor. He could care less about the guy's money. He could care less about the guy's legalistic righteousness. He wanted the whole, the whole heart of this man. Not half of it. Not the most of it. All of it. This is what Jesus said it meant to believe in him. The Apostle Paul understood what Jesus meant. In his exposition of the gospel in Romans, his letter to the Roman church, he laid out the gospel in detail, exactly what it meant to believe in Jesus. And then he gets to chapter 12 and says, this is how this works out in your life. This is is the result of really, truly believing in Jesus. He said this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, based on the gospel, is what he's saying. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Your whole life is on the altar, is Paul, what Paul said, what it means to believe in Jesus. See, see, part of our diligent obedience is daily sacrifice. It's placing ourselves on God's altar for his purposes, in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. Home, work, school, on the road, driving, everything is on the altar. And when you fail, which you will before you get home today, you remember the grace of God and you access it through confession and repentance and chasing the promise given to us by Jesus himself. See, (laughs) We place ourselves at God's disposal. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. Clarifying this point to the Corinthian church who needed clarification, Paul said this, "'Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You," listen closely, Sun Valley, "'you are not your own.'" You, speaking to the Christian, you have been bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Everything, friend, is on the altar. You are a living sacrifice, daily taking up your cross and following him. You see, gospel obedience falls under the command. God requires us to keep all of his precepts, most importantly, the gospel, diligently. And then finally, the Bible draws us, speaking of the importance of Scripture, Scripture alone, this Bible, this Scripture, draws us to the source of our deepest desires. Because of sin, as I've already discussed with you, we have clouded minds and hearts, our vision is impaired, and we spend a lot of time chasing shallow desires, You ever find yourself doing that? You catch yourself chasing something stupid? Um, You see, sin convinces us that that things less than Christ are really good and really important and worthwhile. Um, But it isn't until the Holy Spirit lifts this fog from our spiritual eyes that we actually see our deepest and truest desires right here in front of us in the scriptures. Christ revealed full of glory. You know we chase we chase money thinking that it will satisfy when our creator when Jesus himself has repeatedly told us that we will never find happiness or satisfaction in that pursuit. We chase the approval of men when Jesus our creator repeatedly tells us that the approval of men vacillates in and out, up and down, but the approval of God is the only important thing, and it's sure and eternal and unchanging. See, the the Bible, when read through the lens of the Holy Spirit with the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, when the Bible read in that context is read by the believer, we all of a sudden see here in front of us our deepest desires manifest. Manifest. The Holy Spirit is at work in all of us who believe. It draws us Godward. It draws us to God's people and into His Word and assures us of His love and His forgiveness found in Christ. Sola Scriptura. Pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are so easily distracted by the world. Father, your word is so precious. And yet, it seems that we are way too flippant with it. In your mercy, Father, send your spirit to draw us to grab hold of our hearts and soften them so that we might see wonderful things in your word, so that we might see Christ Jesus himself poured out on the pages of these scriptures that we have in our possession. Father, we're so thankful that we have what we have. We're so thankful that in your mercy, you incited godly men 500 years ago to see what's important and to spend their lives literally for the sake of your church, for the sake of your people, for the sake of your glory. Father, help us not to neglect this. Help us to live today, and tomorrow, and the rest of our lives with a deeper appreciation of your word and commit ourselves to having it pour over us every single day because you have the words of life. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.